You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you've given us a word, that you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. We ask that the spirit that inspired Matthew as he recorded these words, that same spirit you would give to us now as we read and study these words, that you would apply them to our lives, that you would transform us. And that as we read your words, uh, we would not be burdened by them, but we would find hope. And that we would uh, come close to you and behold our God. So we ask that you would be our teacher now. And I do pray that uh, your spirit would translate uh, the words that I speak. That um, those that are sitting here would hear a different sermon. One that applies to their life. um, That you would be present with us and be our teacher. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, this is, we, we have been a couple months in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, these past three weeks, we've looked very closely at three pretty sensitive topics. Uh, we looked at anger, lust. Last week, we looked at divorce. Actually, I, it was my longest sermon on record I, uh, I saw. So uh, we looked uh, in a lot of detail at these uh, three uh, topics And one of the things is we're looking in a lot of detail really up close at some of these verses, just looking at a few verses at a time. We can lose sight of uh, Jesus' uh, purpose of this sermon as a whole. We're looking at a sermon that takes up Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, one of uh, Jesus' uh, longest and most famous sermons. And um, what's the whole thing about? What's the whole sermon on the mount about that Jesus is teaching us? One of the ways to know what the whole thing is about, one of the most helpful places to look, and I I maybe mentioned this uh, several weeks ago, is to look at the end of the sermon. And if you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says um, that basically there's two ways to live. And he gives these illustrations about these two two ways. He says, well, you know, there's two gates. There's the the wide gate that uh, is easy to go through, and the wide gate leads to destruction. There's the narrow gate that leads to life. And he says there's two trees. There's one tree that bears good fruit, and there's another tree that bears bad fruit. And there's these two houses. There's one house that was built on the sand, and one house that was built on the rock. And when the storms came, the house that was built on the sand didn't stand, but the the house that was built on the rock withstood the storm. And so he's saying there's these two ways to live. Now, most of us, when we think, okay, the Bible says there's two ways to live, we all know that. What we probably think the Bible's going to say is that there's, you can live a life devoted to God, or you can live kind of a godless life where you do whatever you want. But it's interesting as you go back through the Sermon on the Mount and you say, well, what, if there's two ways to live, we'd expect to see them in the sermon. What, what were the two ways? And as you go back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will talk about something like prayer. And he'll say, well, he doesn't talk about one person who prays and another person who doesn't pray. He says uh, that the Pharisees, they pray as hypocrites. And they want to be seen by everyone, and they're kind of showing off when they pray. And so you should pray in your closet where no one knows, and your Father will reward you for what you do in secret. So it's not the two ways to live are not one person who prays and one person who doesn't pray. It's two people who are both praying, and yet they're praying for very different reasons. 
Same with tithing. There's two people who tithe. They're both religious people. They're both kind of devout people. Their lives are built around um, doing God's commands. And yet Jesus says one way is leading to destruction and one way is leading to life. What's the difference? And um, the contrast is between the religious person whose life is, is about showing off versus the disciples of Jesus who have been profoundly transformed all the way down to the depths of their soul. Their religious life is not a show. It's something that's, that's been internalized. Their heart, that, that what you see on the outside is who they really are on the inside. And that this is what, uh, these are the two ways to live. And so a major concern for Jesus, the major concern in the Sermon on the Mount, is that there's a coherence, a consistency and an agreement between our public life and our secret life. Our inner hidden life and our public life are the same. They agree. There's a, there's a coherence. And, um, and that's why actually four times in the sermon he talks about being aware of being a hypocrite. And I think that this, uh, this question of coherence, this agreement of my outer life and my inner life, is, is what we mean by the word integrity. My outer life and my inner life agree. And I think that that's at the heart of this passage that we're looking at today is Jesus' concern that, that his disciples would be people of integrity. And um, now that sound, might sound like kind of a boring moralism, you know. Don't lie. God doesn't like liars. Be truthful. You know, something that we tell children and that uh, some people see as kind of a trite moralism. But I think this is a profound issue in the Christian life because wherever you're living out your Christian life, whether it's in your workplace uh, whether it's as you raise children, um, whether it's with your neighbors, maybe with other family who are not Christians, one of the biggest things that uh, people will be judging you on, whether it's coworkers, whether it's your children, is, is your integrity. Does your secret life, does your life match your profession? Are they, do, are they really in agreement? Are you an honest person? And this is going to be one of the biggest things that people are watching us to see, is Jesus is the Bible true? Is Jesus really alive? Is, uh, is there really a God? The way that they're going to be making that decision is based on this question of our integrity. And, uh, you know, many of us, of course, have had people say, say to us that the reason they don't believe in the Bible is because Christians are hypocrites. And so uh, this is a serious issue. It's a big issue. And that's why Jesus puts it right in this heart, right in the heart of his Sermon on the Mount. And so what I want to lead uh, this morning, I want to lead us in a study of the importance of integrity. And I want to look at three things as we look at this passage. The first is the damage of dishonesty. I want to look at what damage does living a dishonest and inconsistent life do. Second, I want to look at the uh, attributes of, of integrity. What does integrity look like? What is a, a, a life of integrity and honesty that Jesus is describing? What are, what are some of the descriptors that he gives? And third, what is then the source of true integrity? How do we get that life? How does that become true for us? So those three things of integrity. So the first question, uh, the first thing we'll look at is the damage of dishonesty. Now, dishonesty can take on a lot of forms, right? You know, you can say a blatant lie, uh, because you want to avoid some consequences. Um, you can uh, tell someone something they want to hear so that they'll feel good. 
and so that, or maybe so they won't get mad at you or they that you want to avoid conflict. Um, you could make commitments that you don't follow through with. You might stretch the truth, you know, when you're doing your taxes or you're doing some business report. Um, dishonesty can show up in all kinds of different places, and I and I you know I could talk a lot about uh, the different ways that we are not entirely truthful with others. Um, but what I want to look at is um, what does it do to us when we make an allowance for dishonesty and inconsistency in our life? How does that, uh, how does that affect our lives and our relationships to others? And I think we see a, a few things in this passage. There's three things I want to highlight. The first thing is this. The damage that it does is that dishonesty fractures our souls. When we are dishonest, it will fracture, it will break apart into pieces our soul. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Look at verse 33 again. Again, Jesus says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, Jesus is kind of, whether this is something that some of the religious people in Jesus' day said, or maybe he's summarizing some of the Old Testament teaching. But basically in the Old Testament, there were kind of two parallel teachings that governed God's people. The first was this, that is, if you make an oath... Which an oath is saying where you, you swear to something and you take God as a witness that basically if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, then, I, then God should punish me for not doing it. And the Old Testament says if you make an oath like that, you better do it. But on the other hand, the Old Testament also says that you shouldn't be making oaths like that. You should rarely be making oaths like that because you should not take the Lord's name in vain. So you shouldn't just be throwing out, uh, oh, I swear to God I'm going to do that. that. That You shouldn't be using God's name. They were very slow to use God's name. And so it was these two things that Jesus is bringing together and that he's interacting with. And as he references this tradition, he goes on to say in verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, what is he talking about there? Um, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the, the religious community in Jesus' day had decided, they said, okay, well, there's these rules in the Old Testament that you're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain and make these oaths haphazardly. So, you know, what we could do is, what if we swear by heaven? You know, now I'm not swearing by the Lord's name, you know, but heaven's pretty close to God. So maybe I can get the authority of the Lord so I can get people to believe what I'm saying, but I'm not actually using the Lord's name. Or, you know, maybe I'll, I'll swear by the temple or I'll swear by Jerusalem. And so I can get the credibility and that, that people trust God and so they'll trust me. But, you know, I'm not really using the Lord's name in vain. And uh, Jesus says, uh, this is foolish. You're, you're just um, getting away from the principle of what God's word says. Because first of all, everything is the Lord's. Everywhere is, is present. God's eyes are on everything. And so what Jesus command here is that you shouldn't be making oaths, but that everything you say for his disciples, his, his intent for us is that everything we say should be oath laden. That he, his desire for his disciples is that every word that comes out of our mouth should be as if our hand was on a Bible. And that's his vision for the, the kind of level of integrity, the sincerity of our words. And, um, and Jesus' problem with the oaths and swearing by God is that when you were allowed to make oaths and swear by God, then it was allowing you to have a double life. Because you'd have, they'd begin to have this idea that on the one hand, okay, uh, you know, when I swear by heaven or I swear by earth, I swear by Jerusalem, then that's a promise that I really need to keep. 
But then in my day-to-day kind of life, you know, it's better to be honest, but I can kind of fudge the truth a little bit. I can, I can move around. It's not as serious. So I have this religious life where I make these promises by heaven and by earth and by Jerusalem. And then I have my everyday life where uh, over here I need to be really honest, but over here I, I don't need to be that honest. And so my religious life and my, my public life and my secret life are different. They're fractured. I have, there's two people. And so if integrity is the consistency between our public life and our secret life, then that's why this is what Jesus is going after, is this lack of integrity. Actually, you know, if you're a math person, I'm a ma- I, was, I studied math before I was a pastor. If you go back to middle school math, you remember what an integer was? Is a whole number, right? It's a whole number. It's not a fraction. It's not a number that's been divided. And that's where we get the word integrity and inter- integer are, this, are the same word. There's a wholeness. Integrity is there's a unity of my life, of every part of me is whole and it is one and it is agreement. There's a consistency. And what dishonesty in our life will do will always create a double life. It will fracture us and break us apart. And... Um, because what happens is, you know, when we say, you know, oh, I, I'll tell one little lie to my, my wife or my husband because I want to avoid a conflict. I'll just tell, you know, one little lie, it's not going to hurt. In that, in that immediate context, you're going to feel a little bit of relief because you dodge the conflict because of that. Um, but what's going to happen is, first of all, you're training your heart to this is how, this is how you uh, talk to people, this is, how you, this is how you treat people, this is how you deal with conflict. But secondly, what's going to happen is when we tell one lie, we're going to end up having to tell another lie to cover that lie. And usually that second lie is a little bigger than the first lie. And so the first lie is growing. And now in order to come clean, it's getting even harder to come clean because it's getting, uh, the lie's growing. And then to cover that second lie, I need, to grow an, I need to add another lie onto it to cover that lie. And that lies have this addictive quality to them where I need to add one more onto the other and it becomes tra- and, and, until that, that lie grows into a whole other life, until our lives are fractured. And um, this is what I mean by a fractured soul. And let me just tell you that there is no existence more miserable and more lonely and ultimately more restless. There is a deep restlessness when our souls are fractured. They're not unified. You can feel that in your soul. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. When um, there's a part of our life that has not been uh, handled with complete integrity, our, our souls are, are broken apart and we can never find peace. This is the first damage that a dishonest life does to us. It does to our own souls. But the second thing, it doesn't just do damage to us, but uh, dishonesty also dishonors God. Dishonesty also dishonors God. And one of the things that's interesting uh, about the Bible is that often um, the Bible says that you actually honor God more by speaking of him less. Now, that's not always true. I mean, we're supposed to, you know, announce what God has done in the gospel. But, but in the Old Testament, there was a sense of speaking God's name is something you should be very careful to do. You don't just 
flippantly talk about who God is. So that, that an honest life actually speaks about God's le- God less. And actually, as you, you know, as I read through verse 34, what Jesus says, do not swear at all, don't swear by heaven, uh, for that is uh, God's throne, or, or by the earth, for it's his footstool. And you're, you're, you, you know, maybe somebody who's reading that, you're like, what is all this? Heaven and God's throne and the three, it sounds all like a lot of religious language. And w- what's going on in there? I think you're right. It's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of religious jargon going on in there. And I think that's ex- exactly what Jesus is going after, is that a dishonest life needs a cover. A dishonest life needs a cover, and it often takes a cover of religiousness, because, you know, God is trustworthy, uh, the Bible is the truth, and so if, I can, if I'm living a dishonest life, I can use a religious life as a cover um, to, so that people still trust me, even though I'm not trustworthy. And, um, you know, I kind of think of it, uh, you, know, you know, when you go to a catered party and the, uh, there's a piece of meat that's really not a very high quality piece of meat. And so they, they dump a gravy, like a glaze all over it. And it's kind of this disguised food and it's not a good piece of meat. So maybe if I cover it in this, this gravy, it'll really, uh, people won't know that it's not a mediocre piece of meat. And that's essentially what we do is we put this glaze of religiousness over a dishonest life and think that people will buy that. And, you know, many of us, many non-Christians are very suspicious of that. Actually, I was talking to someone this week who uh, uh, was going to do, be doing some counseling for a couple whose uh, uh, marriage was having a lot of problems. This couple doesn't live in Whatcom County. And, uh, and the, the wife had called to say, hey, we're looking for some marriage counseling. And, and the whole conversation was just filled with Christian jargon and all kinds of Christian language. And immediately uh, the counselor, these were red flags. Something's wrong here. This is a little too Christian of a conversation. I just met you. We're just talking. And in the first conversation, that was absolutely confirmed. This was one of the worst <laughs> interactions with a couple uh, that he had ever had. And, and the, the Christian language was covering up um, a, a life that was deeply broken and distressed. And, um, and I think that that's what was happening in this religious community is that they used a religious life to cover up a dishonest life. And whenever we do that, whenever we allow ourselves to be dishonest, what's happening is that God is becoming small and people are becoming big, right? Because if, if we're using religion as a cover, what that means is I kind of have God in my pocket, and if I need someone to trust me, I can kind of pull him out, and um, I can gain trust. I'm kind of using him. And um, I'm actually not, and, and, but in reality, God's probably off, far off somewhere. You know, I've lied a lot, and I haven't been struck dead yet, so he's probably off dormant somewhere. He probably doesn't care. He's kind of weak. He's kind of small. I can use him to get uh, the advantages that I need, but people are big, I don't want people to, if people found out the truth about me, it would, I couldn't bear it. It's too much. And so people are, are big in our sight. And that this is what's happening is this reversal. Instead of God being big and his thoughts being big and people being like, well, they're just people. They're just creatures. Um, there's a reversal. And let me just say, you know, by the way, I think that that's uh, something that we should be kind of considering throughout our life is whose eyes are we living before? Are we living before the eyes of God or before the eyes of people? Whose people's eyes do we really care about? And is that really happening in our, in our heart? I tell you, that, that's something that I need to analyze as a minister all the time. Whose eyes am I living before? Even before your eyes, 
Am I living before your eyes? Or am I living before God's eyes? Am I preaching sermons before your eyes and what you want to hear or, be, or what God's called me to say? And so I think that this is something, uh, and, and whenever we are using God that way, we are dishonoring him. And a life of integrity always lives before the eyes of God. Okay, so the damage, it, it fractures our souls. It dishonors God. But third, um, dishonesty manipulates others. Dishonesty manipulates others. And you see that um, Jesus' command here, he says in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all. Now, traditionally, uh, you know, that that causes some problems because you live, you know, we live in a society where we have to make oaths to the government if you're going to serve in the government or in the military. And, uh, you know, should we never, does Jesus forbid us from ever taking uh, an oath? And and traditionally, Christians have said that... um, the, the main thing he's saying is you should not uh, make, be making oaths. If someone else is demanding an oath from you, it's okay to kind of relieve their conscience. But you shouldn't be offering up oaths in order to get people to believe you. You shouldn't be um, uh, initiating them and creating them and making them. And uh, the excess use of oaths, um, and, or sorry, what I was going to say is that Jesus, Jesus says that honest people do not need to resort to oaths. They do not need to resort to oaths in order to get people to believe them. And the excess use of oaths is going uh, to be only by people who need to get people to do things they want. So if we're using oaths and promises a lot and trying to, we're trying to get people to do what we want. We're trying to get people into our hands and to control them and to, and to do what we want. We're trying to manipulate them. And I actually, you know, I remember as a, as a kid, I, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have any knowledge about God. I, I was an atheist uh, much of my adolescence. And yet for some strange reason, I had this sense that if I, wa- if I was telling someone something and I said, I swear to God, this is true. There was actually a part of me that was like, okay, I actually better tell the truth here because I, I don't want to get cursed or struck down. You know, there's going to be some curse in my life. I can't break this. And so you get in this habit of, uh, okay, I do, I have this setting where I use this. If I really, you know, basically I live a dishonest life, but I'm going to use this. If I say, I swear to God, then someone will believe me. But then what happens is you get into a situation where you really want to do something. You know, as a kid, you really want your parents to let you do something or uh, to not, you know, to give you something you want. And so, and they won't, and they don't believe you. And I need this lie. So all of a sudden, I've realized that that little phrase, I swear to God, I promise, has power in it. And so now I'm going to say, all right, this one time I got to use it because it has power. I can use it to get people to do what I want. And so you use it. And you, it, there's a manipulation going on. And uh, Immanuel Kant, who was a famous philo- German philosopher in the beginning of the modern era, um, was very suspicious of oaths. He hated oaths. And he says that in them, uh, we naively believe that a person who cannot be trusted to tell the truth can be persuaded to speak truthfully by the use of a formula. And what Jesus is resisting here is he says, we actually think that if you have a dishonest heart and you slap an oath on top of it, that all of a sudden you're going to make that person into an honest person. He's like, you're wrong. (laughs) This is just like any other kind of religion that you try to slap onto someone. It's not going to change the heart. And the thing that Jesus really wants is that our hearts would be transformed and that we would be from the depths of our souls people of integrity. 
And so, um, in fact, if you give, if you put an oath into the hand of a dishonest person, they are going to use it to manipulate other people. And that's what was happening in this religious community. They could maintain a show of religiousness. They could dishonor God. They could fracture their own souls. And, uh, and they could still manipulate people in the process. And so this is what Jesus is going after in this religious community. So, extensive damage that dishon- a dishonest life does to us does profound dishonor to God and to other people. So then, what does integrity look like? What does a life of integrity look like? And there's probably a lot that could be said about this, um, but we're going to look at a few attributes of integrity. And I want to highlight three of them in this, little, this great little phrase that Jesus says in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Three attributes that we see in this little phrase. The first thing is this, is that integrity is transparent. Integrity is transparent. Uh, He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Let it be, let there be a consistency between what you say And um, if you say, yes, I'll do that for you. Uh, Yes, that is what I really think about this matter. Let that reflect what you really think and who you really are. You know, and as I grew up, there were certain uh, proverbs, Walker family proverbs that uh, I heard again and again, probably the the most repeated, say what you're going to do and do what you said you're going to do. Say what you're going to do and do what you said you're going to do. This simplicity, this honesty, of, and, and then doing it. And a transparency of this is, what, this is my plans. This is, this is what I'm re- really going to do. And, and, um, and uh, it's interesting that even though that sounds so simple, uh, if you have worked with people who lack integrity or transparency or honesty, you know how disruptive it can be to your whole life. It, it is distru- it's deeply disruptive. And we long for that from people because we get it so rarely for someone to be transparent with us, okay? So first, integrity is transparent. Second thing we see in this is that integrity is simple. There's a simplicity to integrity. Let what you say simply, uh, be simply yes or no. Let it be simple. And as I was saying before, uh, the Pharisees in, in the religious life that Jesus was challenging in this passage Um, was covered with all kinds of religious talk, all kinds of jargon, all kinds of little phrases that kind of would get people to do what they wanted. And Jesus says that you can recognize integrity in someone when they speak less. When when they are talking less, um, when they are slow to speak, when they're slow to explain, slow to justify, slow to give extenuating circumstances. And one commentator I read on on this chapter, uh, this passage said this, in this command, Jesus seeks by guarding the use of God's name to make our speech simpler, less exaggerated, more down to earth, and in a certain sense, even less outwardly spiritual or less filled with spiritual formulas. 
Integrity sounds plain and down to earth. And actually, I think non-Christians recognize that. People who are not Christians, if they hear a lot of Christian language out, and we can't talk in plain language, but um, they'd mistrust that. They say, you have some other motive going on that you're using this jargon, this other language. Just shoot me straight. Just be plain and simple with me. And we just trust each other with that. We, you know, the council was, there were red flags going off when he was hearing all the Christianese. And so, um, I, and Jesus is kind of agreeing with the non-Christians here. And so the reality is that when we are called to own up to things, um, uh, we have a tendency to talk a lot. We want to nuance things. We want to justify things. We want to explain them. And we want to add words to them instead of a simplicity of our speech and just being plain. Um, And we always want to say, well, there's more to the story. There's more information you need. This is not my fault. And Jesus says, let your answer simply be yes or no. Did you fail to come through on your commitment? Yes. Did you care for this person in a way that you should have? No. I have nothing else to say. This is a plain answer. I'm going to shoot you straight. There's a simplicity to integrity. And I think that there's something literal to what Jesus is saying. Let it be yes and no. A short, brief answer. And uh, actually just this week, uh, I was reading in Proverbs 12. And uh, this, this proverb... Uh, I spent some time meditating on where it says a prudent man conceals knowledge. A prudent man conceals knowledge. We have things that actually are true. Things that we can add to some discussion or to explain things that actually are true. They may be helpful, but a prudent man will actually hold those things back. We don't have to say everything. Actually, I was at a conference with Dallas Willard month or so ago, and uh, he's a writer, and I don't know if he was telling the story or someone was talking about him, but he was a, a philosophy pre- professor at uh, USC, very smart man, and uh, he said that one of his practices when he was having a class, and he'd have some student who was disagreeing with him and thought he was really smart, this college student thought he was smarter than the philosophy professor, and he was, you know, would end the class with this uh, big you know, rebuttal, trying to disagree uh, with Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard would listen to it, and then he'd say, well, I think we'll end with that. And everyone in the class would be like, you could have just annihilated him. You could have just ripped him apart. You could have just, you know, you could have answered that. And, and he said, I was, it was my practice to have, it was uh, my habit to practice the discipline of not having the last word. I didn't have to have the last word, and I could let him have the last word. The prudent man conceals knowledge. And so integrity looks like a simplicity of speech and a slowness uh, to, uh, to add to what we want to say. And of course, you know, I put in here as a preacher, this is convicting to me. I get up and I talk for, <laughs> so uh, something for me to think about. Okay, the third attribute that we see uh, of integrity in this passage is that integrity is decisive. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Make a commitment. Make a decision. And follow through another proverb, Walker family proverb. Uh, make, a, uh, make a decision and live with the consequences. You make a decision, you live, you live with the consequences. And that's something I, I, that goes over my head over and over again, is just say yes or no. And because you're never going to have a perfect answer. You're never, you know, the decision and the things that you're going to take responsibility for, when you say, yes, I'm going to do something, you're taking responsibility for something. You're owning it. 
And uh, there's going to be a tendency to say, well, what if this happens? Or I don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know if this is a perfect decision. I don't know what, if I sh- I don't know what I should do. And, and you go back and forth, and then you're, you're stuck, and you don't do anything. And a person of integrity makes a decision. You're not going to have all the answers. It's a judgment call. And you say, yes, this is what I'm going to do. And then you live with the consequences. And you just be prepared. I'm going to make a decision. I know it's not going to be perfect. And so I'm going to be ready when I find out that part of it was wrong. Probably not the whole thing was wrong, but part of it is wrong. And I'm going to need to own that. I'm going to need to learn from that. And, uh, and we make a decision. And because, you know, there's a famous old saying, you can't steer a parked car, right? If you're standing still, you can't move. You can't correct. But if you're moving, you can correct it. You can change it. And that's the way our life is going to be is we're going to make decisions that are imperfect. But integrity looks like a decisiveness. Yes, I will do this. Yes, you can count on me. Uh, you can depend on me to do this. But also, you know, it's interesting. He doesn't just say yes uh, or let what you say be simply yes. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. <laughs> no, I can't commit to that because we're people pleasers. <laughs> I know I'm a people pleaser. We want to say yes. But integrity also understands our limitations, embraces our limitations, that that I'm going to have to say no to things. And I'm going to have to, there are things that I can't commit to because I'm not God. And I can't, you know, we're going to see in a minute that God says yes. God can say yes to everything. God can come through on everything, but we can't. We're limited. And so um, we need to think through, are there times that I need to say, uh, say no? Because the reason our yeses are not always yeses is because we overcommit ourselves. And people need to be able to trust that our yeses are yes and our noes are noes. And so that's a big thing for me. I know some of you have, have come to me and say, you, you know, you want to talk with me about something. And, and you say, I know you're so busy. And, I, I, you know, I don't know if you, you have, I don't want to crowd your schedule. And you need to be able to trust that when I say yes, that it's really a yes, that you're not crowding my schedule. Or that I say no, that I'm... I, that I'm going to be honest enough with you to say no. And we need to have that trust with one another that we can be decisive and clear with each other. So this is a picture of, an, of what integrity um, looks like of um, a transparency, a simplicity of speech, and a decisiveness. That's how Jesus paints the picture of it. And now, um, for most of us, we love to work with people who are people of integrity. Um, but People of integrity are not generally liked by everyone um, because, you know, a, a transparent person can be intimidating, right? Okay, they're going to shoot me straight. They're going to uh, tell me what they really think. Or a decisive person is going to make decisions and they're going to be imperfect. And so, um, but the question is, how do we become this kind of person? How do we become uh, someone that has a, a transparency, a simplicity, and a, and a decisiveness to us? And I think that, um, let me get this just right, that those three things come from security. Being transparent, simple, and decisiveness comes from a sense of security. You can only be a person of integrity if you have experienced the love of God who himself is truth. If you have experienced the love of God for you, that God himself is truth, uh, then that will begin to create this kind of character within us. And so this is the third thing we're going to look at is the source of true integrity. And whenever I read this passage in Matthew, it makes me think of another uh, passage in 1 Corinthians 1 that uses the same language of yes and no. And this is what Paul says in, oh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 1. uh, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, 
For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And what Paul is saying in this passage is the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, is a story loaded with promise, loaded with anticipation. It is a story looking for a hero, looking for an ending of this, this Messiah, this king who's going to come and bring all things together and um, bring all the promises of God to God's people. And Paul says that in Jesus, we see the integrity of God. Jesus is a picture to us of the integrity of God that God makes good on his promises. He is faithful. What he said he was going to he said what he was going to do and then he did what he said he was going to do. He's done it. That's the character of God and all the promises of God to us are yes in Jesus. The forgiveness of our sins. Uh, the f- forming together of a spiritual family, um, eternal life that we're going to share in the resurrection with Jesus, that God has poured his spirit on, on us. These are all the things that God has vowed and promised to us, and that in Jesus, they all become a yes. Um, and I would say that if there's one thing that the Bible says about who God is, is that he's a promise-making God and he keeps his promises. That's God's character. That's the, the central to God's character in the Bible. And so the most important thing for making us into a people of integrity is that we come to, pers- to know personally the faithfulness of God. We need to personally know the faithfulness of God to us that he makes good on his promises. We need to experience that God makes good on his promises to us so that when Jesus says that he will provide for our daily provisions, right? He says, do not worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, but seek first the kingdom, that God will provide for you the things you need. If you seek his kingdom, he he knows that you have need of all these things. He will give them to you. He's a good father. And so when we go out and we tell God, we throw ourselves on those promises and say, God, I'm going to seek first the kingdom and I'm going to depend on those things. And you see God come through on those promises that he is a father, that he is love. And, and many of you I've talked to again and again and again, I've had people say, God has come through again and again. He has never failed me. He, he's always been there to provide again and again. And when you experience that, that God is really uh, good on his promise. He is a God of integrity. And not just in some general sense that he keeps his promises, but he is, he is uh, true to you. He is faithful to you as an individual. When you experience that, that is what's going to begin to transform you. That is the source of our integrity is God's integrity. Because you think about, um, you know, why don't, we, uh, why don't we make commitments to people? Why don't we take responsibility for things? Because of fear. Gosh, uh, if I take responsibility for that, I don't know if I can come through with it. I don't know if I'm good enough for that. I don't know if I have the gifts for that. It's because of fear. Or um, why, do we, uh, why do we lie to people? Why are we not transparent with people? Why do we dodge, dodge uh, being uh, straight with people? It's because of fear. We live in fear of what they're going to think of us. But when we have internalized in our hearts um, that there is a God who is true to us and is faithful and will never fail us, it's as we rest in him that we can become people of integrity through his promises. And, um, and that he has been faithful to us even despite our sin, despite our dishonesty. Even our faithless lives, even when we're faithless. That's what uh, 2 Timothy 2 says. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. 
And so you see, the way to true integrity is not simply don't lie. Be, tell the truth, good boys and girls. That's not the answer. That's just pure moralism. But the way to be honest from the heart, to be a person of truth and integrity, is that you must know in your heart that in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God to you are yes and amen. And to see them and to experience them in your own life. And when you do, uh, this, his integrity will come into you and it will begin to shape your work, your family, and every area of your life. And so this is possible for us through Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we long to be people of integrity. And uh, we all know uh, the ways that we have fallen short of this vision you have for us. So we pray that you would uh, make clear to us, give us eyes to see that you have been faithful to your promises and that you have done what you said you would do. And would that grab hold of our hearts? And, uh, and as your faithfulness grabs hold of our hearts, would we love truthfulness? Would we love honesty? And would you give us courage to risk those things knowing that you are our refuge and uh, that you will never leave us? And I pray that as we go out into our workplaces, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, we would be known as a people of integrity. Transform us, change us into that. Through your word and by your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.